Those of you who are visiting with us today, we're in about the middle of a 15-part series on uh, the book of Genesis through the summertime, talking about God's gifts in Genesis. And even though the covenant has been mentioned once before, uh, chapter 17, I believe if my memory serves correctly, uh, today we're talking about uh, that gift of the covenant and what the heart of the covenant is and what the sign of the covenant is. So I hope you'll turn with me in your ESV Bible or find your bulletin insert that has our passage of Scripture printed upon it, and we'll use this as a unison reading together. So let us read the Word of God together. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Back in May of 1982, Sarah and I had just graduated from Erskine College and Erskine Theological Seminary, respectively, in about the middle of May. 
And then June 26th, we were married. And then we moved to the Rock Hill area the weekend of July the 4th. And I began work as your first associate pastor right out of seminary July the 15th with the first Lord's Day coming July the 18th. And that Lord's Day was a wonderful day for many different reasons, but one that sticks out in my mind especially is because you as a a congregation gave us a pounding. Now, if you're younger or a child, you probably don't even know what a pounding is. It doesn't mean we were punched out, you know. It means that we were given lots of groceries, Lots and lots of groceries. Some believe that that term goes back to an old Quaker system where uh, this would be given to the new pastor. And, you know, in those days, people would give a pound of flour or a pound of salt or a pound of corn or whatever. And so that's where the term pounding comes from. It was a wonderful gift in many ways, but especially when you consider the fact that uh, we were newlyweds, didn't really have anything to speak of in the pantry, nor the apartment uh, for that matter, and that pounding provided a lot of groceries. I mean a lot, like 45 pounds of sugar, if my memory serves me correctly, in five-pound bags, and lots of canned goods. Lots of paper products, clinics and paper towels and those sort of things, cleaning supplies, the kinds of things that really cost a lot of money if you have to go buy them in a grocery store. I don't know how many churches do that anymore, if any, but it's a practice that I hope we won't forget as Christian people, because I can remember the effect it had on us. We were so excited, number one, that we brought all those groceries into the apartment and put them on the floor and spread them out and took pictures. (laughs) But it was a gracious gift. It was an unexpected gift. And it was a gift that was not earned. And I think that's why it had such an effect. It was a sign of your love, of your support and encouragement. A sign that we were part of this congregation. And though it's not the exact same thing, we see that same sort of thing happen in this passage this morning. God gives Abraham and Sarah a sign of his love, a sign of his support and encouragement, a sign that they belong to him. Our text tells us that the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, at first glance, you're probably thinking, if you've been in this summer series, you're probably thinking, well, that just sounds like the same old thing we heard two weeks ago in Genesis 12. It sounds much like what we heard a week ago in Genesis 15. 
But as John Walter, Walton, professor of Old Testament at Wheaton, puts it, it is only now, after nearly 25 years have passed since that first conversation between God and Abraham and Haran, that God begins to ask for covenant responses from Abraham. As he begins the process of building a relationship that goes beyond God simply making promises. In other words, God has been making promises all along. We heard those promises in in Genesis 12. We heard them in Genesis 15, changing the words slightly, but the same basic promises. But it's only now, some 25 years later, that God begins to tell Abraham just a little bit of who he is. He comes to him and says, I'm El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. And not only does he give Abraham some indication of of who he is, but he also puts stipulations upon Abraham. Walk before me and be blameless. Yes, God is initiating this relationship with Abraham and Sarah just as He initiates a relationship with you and me. He expects Abraham and Sarah to live for Him and to be loyal to Him. This is truly the gift of a covenant which is typically viewed as an arrangement between unequal parties and yet that contributes to both. For Israel, it offered the gift of hope the gift of an identity, the gift of a sense of of belonging, a community that would really turn into a nation. For God, as this Genesis series has made clear, the covenant is not just a relationship, as important as that is, but a means whereby God reveals Himself to those that He has called and chosen. And we see that continue today as Abraham... as as God appears to Abraham and calls him and Sarah to respond in favorable ways to his leadership in their lives. But it's not just about responding in faith, as important as that is. I mean, faith is very important. We talked about that last week, and we talked about how ultimately faith is a gift from God himself. But we have to remember, as James puts it, faith without works is what? Faith without works is dead. God expects faith to have its desired result in the lives of Abraham and Sarah, for them to live in such a way as they're blameless. And when we hear that word blameless, we think sinless, but that's not really what God means as far as I'm concerned. It's more talking about obedience. And we'll get back to obedience in a minute. But first, as we look at the big picture here, the reason this discussion about the covenant that God made with Abraham thousands of years ago is important to you and me is because God has also made a covenant with us. That new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied in his 31st chapter, a new covenant that has to do, interestingly enough, with God's people knowing Him and Him knowing them, just like this covenant with Abraham. The New Testament is that new covenant. This New Testament that proclaims 
the gift of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. This one that John tells us in his gospel, Jesus who makes God known. You see, that revelation is coming to God's people in a whole new different way. In former times, He spoke to us, God did, by prophets. But now, He speaks through a Son. And as we continue to think about that new covenant, and we think about how it's not only the New Testament, but how it's the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we begin to think about the communion, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and how Jesus says this cup is the what? The new covenant in my blood. It's like Jesus is saying to His disciples in that upper room, do you really see what God is doing here? He's been a covenant-making God all the way through the history of God's interaction with His people, and He is establishing a new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so as we begin to see God revealed in that way, we know that God is love. And that love is revealed in the gift of His own Son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to yield Himself up on the cross for our sins and for the sins of the world so that we might know God face to face through all of eternity, so that we might enjoy all that comes to us in the gift of redemption and its result, which is salvation from our sins. And as we can see over and over again, this new covenant is intertwined with the old covenant. What we read in the New Testament is so connected to the Old Testament. How many times do you think, for example, Abraham is mentioned in the New Testament? Do I hear 20? 30? 40? Would you believe more than 70 times we see Abraham's name in the New Testament? And sometimes we see the the covenant spoken about in the New Testament even without Abraham's name, such as we see in the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 when he says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. And then he says to the Galatians, you were running well. Who hindered you? Who stopped you from obeying the truth? And there we see that word obedience again. We have to remember that in Galatians, Paul is making his argument that we are free in Jesus Christ. We are free from the works of the law. We are free from trying to do, trying to somehow be righteous enough in God's sight to merit salvation because God has given us the gift of salvation in His own Son, Jesus Christ. We now put our trust in Jesus, not the law or our ability to keep the law. This is why Paul states in Galatians 3.29 that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, it goes back to God. And it goes back to His promises. And it goes back to God being faithful to fulfill His promises. And His gift of faith makes us part of Abraham's family and thus God's promises apply to us. 
These promises we're reading right here in Genesis 17 apply to you and me. But the salient point is, as John Piper puts it, we don't become heirs of Abraham's promises by working for God, but by being confident that God works for us. Do you believe that? It's all about God here in Genesis 17. It's about a God who's initiating a covenant. It's about a God who's working in Abraham's life. It's about a God who is calling Abraham. It's about a God who makes promises to Abraham and fulfills those promises. And if God has done and is doing all of this for us, even in Jesus through the new covenant, then like Abraham, we too seek to walk before him and live in a way so as to obey what his word tells us to do. Our obedience is the evidence of the faith that we say we have is actually real. See, there's that word obedience again. But let's leave that word and move on to what some people would call the heart of this covenant, which is that God will be our God. We don't see it just once, we see it twice. In this passage, God wants to make sure that we hear it, that He is going to be our God. And not only do we see it there, but we see it in Jeremiah 31, where God talks about the new covenant. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's the same promise. It's the same heart of the covenant. And in Jeremiah 32, God goes on to say, I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing good to them with all my heart and with all my soul. In fact, as we go on through... Just notice there that God, if He is your God, look at what He says He will do. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing good to them with all my heart and with all my soul. This means His power is at work in your life to bring about good through His purposes. Where do you think Romans 8 comes from? We know that in everything God works for good, Paul says, with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. He's just reiterating what God says in Jeremiah 32. And it's not just God's power, but God's knowledge. All that He knows is at work to do good in you and me in all the circumstances of our lives. That was true for Abraham and Sarah, even as flawed as they were. Even when they made mistakes, even when they tried to go ahead of God and not be patient and wait on God's promise to be fulfilled, God still had a way to work all things for good. If that was true for Abraham and Sarah, as flawed as they were, surely it's true for you and me, sinners that we are. 
But this original promise from God to Abraham is where our good news of the gospel has its foundation, and we must never forget that. Paul talks about it a lot in his letters, but so does even Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke 1. That famous passage of Scripture we refer to as the Magnificat, where she says, talking about God, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and His posterity forever. You hear what she's saying? In remembrance of God's mercy. Keep in mind that mercy is not giving to a person that which he deserves. Now what does Paul teach us about sin in Romans 6? The wages of sin is death. If the wages of sin is death, then you and I deserve death. But Paul also says there in Romans 6, 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we have that free gift because of God's mercy. We have that free gift because of God's grace giving us what we don't deserve. Because He's chosen to be our God. And He's chosen us as His people. So we've been talking about, in this sermon, the gift of the covenant. We've been talking about the heart of the covenant, which is that God chooses to be our God, but we also see something else in this passage. We see the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And notice that this is something God calls on His people to do. Therefore, circumcision helps us to see that what is believed and what is said must also be done. As we've been talking for several weeks now, biblical faith is never just about what we think, just what we believe in our minds. Biblical faith must be acted out. If we are part of God's community and and we trust in Him, then we need to show that that's true. And this is a reason that Jesus would say something like He does in the Sermon on the Mount when He says, Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. In fact, as we go through the Old Testament and begin to study the law and the prophets, we see how much this sign of the covenant actually functioned as a a metaphor for a much serious, a much more serious, committed kind of faith. And what I mean by that is, think about all of the times the Old Testament talks about not just circumcising our bodies, but the circumcision of our hearts. It's in there over and over again. I'll give you two examples. Deuteronomy 10. Moses tells the children of Israel to circumcise their hearts and no longer be stubborn. Sounds like something that could be said to ARPs. And then God tells His people through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. There's something there in our hearts, some kind of cover, some kind of protection, some kind of something that wants to keep God out. 
And so in both the law and the prophets, we see this push over and over that it's not about circumcision of the body. It's about a true faith in the inner life. It's a picture of the the yielding of our wills and, and all that we are to God who is sovereign. This is why Paul can write what he does in Romans 2 when he says he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's spiritual, not literal. You see, for many in Israel, circumcision had had morphed into simply a ritual. That it didn't matter how they lived, but as long as they had been circumcised, they were sure they were in a right relationship with God. And if we're truthful, we know that for many so-called Christians today, baptism is that same sort of sign. Some traditions talk about baptism as if it's the be-all and end-all for salvation. And we know that's not what Scripture teaches. We have to understand that circumcision is important to you and me to talk about today precisely because it points toward baptism as being the sign of the new covenant, as an entrance into a new way of life, a a life of loyalty to a new community known as the body of Christ and fealty, loyalty to its head, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2, Paul mentions both circumcision and baptism together. And he talks about how the Colossians have been circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, having been buried with Jesus in baptism. And he's making the point that in their baptism into Christ and His body, the church, these Gentiles have already in essence been circumcised. Baptism is the circumcision of Christ and it stands for the washing away of sin but at the same time it also stands as being a part of the community of faith. Colossians 2 is therefore a great text that shows us right there in the New Testament how this old covenant of God with Abraham and this new covenant that God gives in the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, are so tied together, both by God's grace and both by God's initiative. It's by God's grace through faith that we're not only saved, but just as much a child of Abraham as any Jew in this world today, which means we get to participate in the same promises we can read about here in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. The best of which is the fact that God is our God. And the reason that's best, or what we referred to, as the heart of the covenant is because God is God of the living and not God of the dead. And that's good news that you can take home with you today. And what I mean by that is you need to remember what happens in Matthew 22. You know, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees were always trying to trap Jesus with some kind of question. And on this particular day, the Sadducees come up and they have a question 
about resurrection. And the ironic thing about this question is the Sadducees didn't even believe in resurrection, but here they come to Jesus with a question about resurrection. In fact, I've heard it said that they are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. (laughs) Well, they come to Jesus with this convoluted hypothetical story about a man and a woman being married and the husband dies and his brother marries that same woman and they don't have any children and he dies and his brother marries that same woman all the way through about seven brothers or so and he dies and then their question is whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And it it makes Jesus angry, and I can tell that because of what he says back to them. He says, you're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God says? And then Jesus quotes Exodus 3, 6. Remember what Exodus 3 is. It's the call of Moses. And Jesus says... Do you not remember what God said? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say I was the God of Abraham because Abraham had been dead for centuries. He said I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And that's why Jesus makes his point by saying he's not God of the dead but of the living. And do you see what that means? For you and me, it means if we live in this world and we're tied by faith in Jesus Christ, the God the Father, we never die. Oh, we'll die a physical death should the Lord tarry. But we'll never have an eternal death. And that's precisely what Jesus tells to Martha when her brother Lazarus has died. The story we can read in John 11 when Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he said, do you believe this? And I want to ask you the same question. Jesus said he's the resurrection and the life. He's the continuation of this God who said to Abraham thousands of years ago, I will be your God. This same God that said through the prophet Jeremiah, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Do we really believe that He's the resurrection and the life? Do we really believe that even though we die, yet shall we live? And whoever lives and believes in Him shall never die. That eternal death so that we might enjoy eternity with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit face to face. You know, your sermon asks the question today, your sermon title... What's so great about the covenant? That's what's great about it. That it leads all the way to a a restored relationship with God through the gift of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Amen. Let's pray together.